0: Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. As we come to today's scripture verses, it's important that we look to the surrounding stories in the text because the Gospel of Mark likes to present us with contextual clues to reveal. An overarching theme we find that throughout the chapters surrounding today's scripture reading jesus is performing miracles jesus feeds thousands with seven loaves despite the disciples' doubt jesus restores sight to the blind man just before the disciples once again question who jesus is and just before our scripture today a father brings his son before jesus for healing The son is epileptic and the father tells Jesus that he asked the disciples for help, but they could not help. Turning to the disciples, Jesus asks, how much longer must I put up with you? That's literally in the text. (laughs) Does it to say, what about all this are you not understanding? How do you not yet understand that I am the Messiah, the son of man? The disciples just don't get it, and yet they still argue amongst themselves about who gets it maybe a little bit more than the others. So Jesus turns to a child, the lowest status person among the household at the time, and he shocks the disciples yet again with an unexpected teaching. This is from the Gospel of Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him, and three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was greatest. He sat down, called the twelve and said to them, whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them and taking it in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me. But the one who sent me.
1: Then we all want a crowded table where everybody's in. The length and width of our tables, both physically and metaphorically, determine the, the breadth and depth of our compassion and the meanings of our lives. And so we are in this series asking the question who is at our table? Who are the voices, the the, the, the characters in this world and in our lives that belong at our table that we might grow and learn from. And last week we looked at the importance of having the skeptic at our table, those that dare to ask the questions with grace and honesty, uh, knowing that at that table they are safe to ask them. And in asking them we might grow into deeper faith ourselves. And today we're looking at This character called the child, do we have children at our table? Are we giving voice to those little ones in our world who have so much to teach us and tell us? Do you remember when as a child you couldn't paint or draw a bad picture? You'd you'd paint or draw something at school and you'd you'd bring it home to mom or dad, uh, certain that you were the next Van Gogh or Picasso? And mom or dad would gaze on that artwork with breathless wonder, like literally wonder as in, I wonder what this is. Um, is it a tree or a green horse? But it, back then it didn't matter what it was because it was yours and it was beautiful. And there was only one thing a mom or dad could say, let's hang it on the fridge, right? And the fridge is the art gallery in every family's home. It doesn't matter what the piece looks like. It doesn't matter uh, how it came out. It's just destined for the refrigerator for the next six months, right? When When did we stop presenting our artwork for the family gallery? Was it when our trees no longer were perfect? Or when our people were no longer proportional? Was it when we began to fear that somebody might come over, a critic who might say, what's that? Was it when we became self-conscious about our work, about our self-worth, about our value in this world, fearing that maybe we didn't measure up? Wouldn't it be great if we could just be children again? Maybe. I mean, parts of it were great, right? Wouldn't you like to go back at least to the time when everyone was so proud of you for taking a good long nap in the afternoon? (laughs) Wouldn't you like to go back to the time where you could eat a whole box of ding-dongs and not worry about the calorie count? Wouldn't it be nice to go back to that time you could strike out three times and still get the game ball and a juice box and then get the long nap afterwards, right? Wouldn't it be great at least to go back to that time in our lives when there was no measuring stick by which to measure ourselves or to be measured by others? Jesus didn't play the measuring up game in his life. I think that's why he genuinely loved kids. It's why he made space for them, uh, it's why he noticed kids. Jesus was so fascinated by a child. Because in the face of a child, I think he saw a part of himself, which is why he says on multiple occasions, we would do well if we became more childlike. And Jesus' love for kids was very unusual in his day. Back then in first century Palestine, nobody was really paying attention to kids. Kids were useful only for their future value. Someday... They would grow up, they would get a job or inherit the family business, they would be able to, to help feed the family, they, they would give security to mom and dad, uh, they would make something in their lives. But until then, nobody really loved kids, you just sort of tolerate them. You, you, you outlast them, right? Jesus saw kids differently. He liked them. He genuinely liked them the way they were and he liked spending time with kids. He, he was never indifferent to the little ones among us. In fact, he, he took them into his arms on a couple of different occasions and, and blesses them. He, on a couple of occasions, he went out of his way to go heal children who were sick. And on one occasion, he actually raised a little girl back to life. And one day, someone brought their kids to Jesus, hoping that Jesus would bless them. And the disciples got in the way. They tried to shoo this family away. And Jesus said in a very famous line, "'Let the children come to me, don't stop them, "'because God's kingdom is made up of people like these.'" What was it about kids that Jesus loved so much that captivated his heart? In our story from Mark's Gospel that you heard this morning, the disciples, it's, this is hilarious, they're arguing about which of them is the greatest. And this is absurd, not just for the argument itself, but for the context in which it occurred. Because just moments before, Jesus had informed them for the second time that he, Jesus, was about to be betrayed and arrested and crucified and killed. And the disciples didn't get it. They don't understand what Jesus is is telling them. Maybe it's like hearing somebody you love very much tell you for the first time, but they have a terminal illness and they won't be here much longer. Maybe the disciples just don't want to think about it. They don't want to accept it. They don't want to deal with it. Um, This is their best friend who's about to die, apparently. We all do this. Uh, As they say, you know, denial is not just a river in Egypt. When when the truth is too much, we, we try to change the topic, the subject, right? And so that's what the disciples do. They they change the subject to of all things themselves, and in particular, to their supposed assumed greatness. In other words, they all get out the measuring stick and they figure out who among them has the most swag. And Peter and James and John are the three that are most confident that they are the greatest of all of them. Jesus had spent a little bit more time and given more attention to them than the others. But why are they arguing over greatness. Well, maybe they actually did understand what Jesus said about his pending death, and that got them thinking about who would take over the business when Jesus was no longer with them. Who's the most qualified, most skilled and talented? Who deserves it the most? And we've all played that comparison game. You ever notice when somebody else gets the promotion, you wonder, what? What? We're all legends in our own minds. When Jesus has finally heard enough of them arguing, he sits them down and he refocuses their attention away from themselves and onto this idea of what a true leader looks like, what greatness really looks like. He says, whoever wants to be first must be last and servant of all. And in that moment, he redefines greatness as servant mentality rather than a serve me mentality. The disciples still aren't getting it. And that's when Jesus discovers he needs some props to, to really accentuate the point. And so he finds this child that's crawling around and he puts the child on his, on his knees. And he says, look at this child. You want to be Great. You really want to be great? Well, this right here is the definition of greatness. And then he says, "Look at the qualification." Well, I didn't say it, but I think he said it. Look at the qualifications. He says, "This guy's—he's little—he's 24 inches tall. Um, limited vocabulary. He's unemployed and unemployable. Like zero net worth. Every once in a while, he pees his pants." Sometimes he projectile vomits in the back of the seat of the car. This is greatness. You want greatness? Think this. Think this child. And remember, in God's book, there's no one greater than this one right here. The weakest, most vulnerable, most overlooked, neglected among us. In the company of Jesus, everybody's in. But in the kingdom of God, Jesus says those who are first to come in are those that are the least and littlest among us. Why? Because Jesus says these little ones are most like him. When you welcome one of them, he says you welcome me. And when you welcome a child, you welcome Jesus. And when you welcome Jesus, you welcome God. Do you see the logic here? Our relationship with God starts with the child. How do we become the child whom Jesus says is instrumental to our own salvation? How do we welcome the child into our lives? I'll give you just a few suggestions. The first is if you, if you want to welcome a child into your life, you have to become a little more childlike than you are. Try this. Find a kid. Any kid will do. Get down on the floor with that child. Before you do it, make sure you can get back up. But get down on the floor with that child and see the world through her eyes. From ground level, play with roly-polies, build with Legos, get finger paint all over your clothes, Um, get rug burns on your knees. Listen for the one millionth time that knock-knock joke that you've heard a million times already and act like you've never heard it before. Find a kid, any kid will do, play a game of catch, hopscotch, checkers, Scrabble. Twister, stop at the corner lemonade stand and buy a round for everyone there. Wave down the ice cream truck and invite the whole neighborhood to come over for the feast. Just find a kid. Do something that only kids love to do, except maybe ride a skateboard and maybe the trampoline. Don't do the trampoline if you're an adult. I'm not suggesting that uh, you start acting like a child. I'm simply suggesting that you try to remember what it was like to be one. And doing any of these things with kids, they won't make you any greater than you are. You can't put them on a resume. God's not going to give you any extra credit. But according to Jesus, doing just one of them is what you absolutely must do if you're going to welcome God into your life. Our relationship with God begins with a child. Doing just any one of these things is enough to help you for at least a moment surrender that paralyzing fear of not measuring up with all the other big people around you. And it's a way to tame that insatiable desire that we all have to be greater than we are. We can't become a child again, but what we can do is we can welcome back the child that we once were. And in doing so, we welcome God back into our lives. This is a strange paradox of our faith, that the older we get, if we truly believe in Christ, the younger we ought to become. Unselfconscious, selfless, wide-eyed with wonder, and content. Content. How do we welcome the child Well, second, you you commit to live every day of your life knowing that there is nothing in this world that's beneath you, nothing. Like literally when you are a child and you're only 24 inches tall, there's not a whole lot beneath you. You'll never be closer to the ground than when you are living at that point um, and you'll see the world from a different perspective that no one else sees. The prophet Micah in that familiar passage from Micah 6 says that God only requires three things of us. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. And I think actually it's the third, the humble thing, that's the hardest. Humility, in the the Hebrew, the word is sana. It literally means humbleness or humility. It appears actually only one other time in all of Hebrew scripture, in Proverbs, where it says, when pride comes... Then comes disgrace, but wisdom is with the humble. Sana, it means grounded, to be grounded. Our English word for humility comes from the word humus, or humus, as we might say, a word that sometimes is used to describe compost. So to walk humbly with God is to be close to the earth. It is to be remembered that we are, we are more mortal beings. We will return to the earth someday. And because of that, we can lift our lives today as if nothing is below us. The first church I served was a startup church in Southern California. We uh, made our church home in this small warehouse. uh, Had these two giant roll-up garage doors. We threw up some drywall and paint and and, uh, threw down some carpet, tried to make it look nice. But the reality is, it was like putting lipstick on a pig. I mean, it was still a warehouse. It was really hard to grow a church in a warehouse back then. Um, Today it's pretty popular, actually, but back then no one was doing it. Um, And not only was it a tough place to have church, but it was also, we had this problem. Uh, We also shared that space with a large community of rats. Um, Now you're like, oh great, he's going to talk about rats. Uh, Yes, I am. These rats were not ordinary rats. They were like 12-pound rats with very bad attitudes. And they would show up, and they'd have baseball bats, and they'd just be like, what do you want, right? They were. When you're trying to grow a church, um, rats can be a problem. Uh, No one wants to see rats scurrying around in worship. And so one day, when a rat literally was scurrying across the exposed pipe in the ceiling and fell off during worship... I knew I had to take matters into my own hands, so every Saturday night I would leave the house, I'd go to this warehouse, and I would set rat traps uh, to try to take care of it. And uh, every Sunday morning I'd go in, and I would take care of the uh, dead rat issue that we would inevitably have. And let me just say some Sunday mornings were really bad. We were a lot of rats. And uh, sometimes the trap situation Looked a little bit more like a crime scene. I'll just leave it at that. But these were, never mind. It was a bad, one Sunday morning I showed up and it was one of those crime scene Sundays. And uh, there was a volunteer that showed up a little while later. I was cleaning the mess up and I started complaining about, you know, I'm a pastor. I'm not an exterminator. I shouldn't be doing this. I've got more important things to do. I didn't quite say this is below me, but I, I probably intimated that this member of my church she was in recovery for alcoholism and her 12-step program taught her the importance of humility and service that you recover by truly embracing that low-to-the-ground mentality even to this day I hear from her from time to time she's one of my great heroes in life The following Sunday after I complained about this, I went in early to deal with the uh, dead rat situation and she was already there. And it was one of those crime scene Sundays, but there she was with gloves on and a mop and she said, I've got this pastor, you just do what you do best. I tried to get the mop from her to help, nope, she said, I need to do this. AA has taught me that there's nothing below me. And every Sunday thereafter, there she was, at 6.30, doing the job. Humility, it's the antidote to the serve me sickness of our hearts that sees some things as just below us. And it keeps us closer to the earth, down where the little ones are crawling, and down where we find Jesus playing. There's one more way to welcome a child into this world and into our lives. And that's to actually entrust the future of the world to a child today. One of the great failures of modern Western life is that our children are mostly seen but not heard. And we'll ask them, what do you want to do when you grow up someday as if who they are right now is less impactful and important, as if they have nothing to contribute today. Can I tell you that our kids want desperately to make a difference today? They want to know that they have a purpose right now, that they have a voice, not someday, but right now. And they don't need another participation trophy. What they need is the dignity and honor of being asked to speak One of the most powerful lines of Scripture is about how God will choose to save the world through a child. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the goat, the calf and the young and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. In other words, God knew better than to entrust the future to a bunch of grown-ups So God went with a kid instead. In that same church I first served, the one with the rats, a decision was finally made to buy some land and to build a building, and so we did this capital campaign to raise a couple million dollars to do this thing. And um, on the day when people were to come down and give their pledges at the altar to this three-year campaign, there were these two little girls' sisters who also came down the aisle And these little sisters that had been with their parents in all these meetings that we had, vision meetings and prayer meetings and and, uh, logistics meetings, they were there always and they heard the message. And they also heard the message about sacrificial giving. And so on this one Sunday when everybody dedicated their pledges, these two little girls came down the aisle holding this bright pink piggy bank. And they climbed the steps and carefully put the piggy bank on the altar. It was the most beautiful act of love I've ever seen. And there was reportedly $17 in that little pig. Ask a young person to speak up, to participate, to contribute. Ask a young person today how we can solve finally the school shooting epidemic. They'll likely give you some better ideas than anything we grown-ups can come up with. Ask a child about how to deal with racism, or climate change, or immigration, or mental health, and they will likely say to you the one thing that you most don't want to hear. Why should we ask them? Because we're not exactly crushing it on these issues, right? And because Jesus is the one who embodies the message, a little child shall lead them. Eddie Kneebone was an Aboriginal activist and speaker, and he dedicated his life to sharing about the culture and customs of the Aboriginal people. He described the sense of importance that his people were able to impart to their children early on when they still lived in the old way on the old land. And these children, he said, never felt the feelings of insignificance or despair that so many of our own kids in the Western world feel. Why? Because, he said, at certain predetermined time in the lives of these young people, these children would be solemnly entrusted with a secret piece of knowledge, information that could prove invaluable later on to the tribe. It might be the location of a hidden watering hole, it might be the medicinal purposes of a, of a plant, but no one else in the tribe would be given that specific piece of knowledge so that when the time was right and the need was there, this young person could step up and be expected to contribute to the welfare of the whole tribe. And because of this custom, he said, these kids had a sense of importance and belonging, Like they had a unique place and contribution in the world. A little child shall lead us. Takeaways for today. If you're searching for God right now, first, look into the eyes of a child. Nothing God calls us to do is ever below us. And let the children speak and we shall be saved. Amen.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.